Welcome to the Melungeon Voices Podcast, presented by the Melungeon Heritage Association. My name is Liz Malone, and I'm here with Heather Andalina, who is the president of the Melungeon Heritage Association. Wow, I'm surrounded by such greatness. <laughs> you know what? You don't have to be great yourself. You just have to hang out with people who are great, and you're automatically elevated. But you're great too, Liz. <laughs> she just doesn't want me to edit her badly. So. <laughs> I'm on to you, Andalina. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and uh, so speaking of great, so we are in this episode six of our fourth season, and um, we've always had uh, some great guests, and we have two fantastic updates from past guests. we got a twofer. All right. Thank you, Liz. First up, we have William Isom, our guest from Season 2, Episode 4. He has informed us that the third season of the Black and Appalachia podcast is now available. Help support our fellow podcasters by checking them out on your favorite podcast platform. And then we also have an awesome update from Katia Ferris. She was from last season, Season 3, Episode 3. She has released an all-new album with 10 original songs in Arabic, available now on Spotify. So check it out. Hey, I'd love to hear about some of the great continued work from these these fine folks that have uh, have appeared on the Melinda Voices podcast. Uh, so congratulations to William Isom with the new season. Bravo. We always yes. love other great podcasts. And to <laughs> Katio and, uh, and your continued success with your music endeavor. So congratulations to you both. <laughs> and uh, we hope to hear more updates uh, as we move forward. So great information, Heather. Thank you so much for sharing that with all of us. And uh, so now let's now move into the this week's episode, and what do we have in store? Well, we are going to be speaking with the previous president of the Melungeon Heritage Association, Scott Withrow. Scott Withrow is an author, editor, and history teacher, as well as a park ranger for the National Park Service. Scott was formerly the board president of the Melungeon Heritage Association for five years and is the current president emeritus of the Melungeon Heritage Association. Scott is the editor as well as an author of one of the essays in the book Carolina Genesis, which is a compilation of essays about people of mixed heritage. In today's episode, Scott and I discuss the founding of the Melungeon Heritage Association and the ambiguity of mixed heritage and racial identity. Heather, any intimidation speaking with your presidential predecessor? Scott's awesome. <laughs> no, he's been awesome this whole time. He sure is. Um, definitely enjoyed my time speaking with him. And uh, so, yeah, so let's let everyone listen in and they can hear for themselves. Hi, Scott. How are you today? Hi, Heather. I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you. <laughs> Good. I like to start off with this question. When was the first time you learned about the Melungeon people or heard the term Melungeon? I learned that. I remember that exactly what happened. Um, I had a, I was with a school district 
and I got a Humanities Council grant. It was the title of the class was South Carolina as part of the Appalachians. And the representative of the Humanities Council here in South Carolina said, well, why don't you get Brent Kennedy? He speaks about the Melungeons. Well, I'd seen the name uh, a few times in books or magazines, but I didn't know a lot. And uh, Brent came down, Dr. Brent Kennedy came down and talked, and uh, uh, that was my first interest. And so I went to the uh, First Union in, and uh, quite a few after then. So that, that was the beginning right there. Scott, tell us about your Melungeon ancestry. I, I didn't know that I had any at one time, but Dr. Brent Kennedy again pointed out in a meeting that I might have Colin's ancestry. And I looked into my genealogy and I did. I have a uh, Collins um, grandparents quite a, quite a few years back great, great, whatever. And uh, their daughter, Suzanne, it was William Collins, and we don't know his wife's name. And their daughter, Susanna, or Suzanne, married William Dobbins. So I'm descended from that family um, in North Carolina. I found out later that many of the um, uh, Collins, there are a lot of Williams in Collins. So that's my problem in tracing this family, the number of Williams in the family. William was a very common given name among male uh, Collins members. That is interesting. And I too have Collinses. So maybe somewhere you and I might be distant cousins. (laughs) Yes, it could very well be. Yes. (laughs) My Collins, uh, if it was the same Collins in um, uh, Tennessee, in Vardy, mine came south instead of migrating west into what became Tennessee. So um, I think not everybody made it there to that area. And some people, of course, migrated from that area. Exactly. And mine went into Vardy. Mine were from Vardy Valley. I'm, I'm still trying to find a link there between... <laughs> Barty Valley and mine. I think there is, but I haven't found it yet. Maybe by DNA some way. And I've talked with other people also about uh, their Collins and just uh, doing a lot of research in North Carolina. And it's so early that it's uh, the research is not, not easy. I think um, Hillsborough uh, area, Hillsborough County, uh, early Granville County, uh, Moore County, which was created from Bladen County. Those are some of the counties that um, are Collins in and uh, near present Durham, North Carolina, the Eno River, that area. And I'm, I'm interested in the migration routes of people moving west, you know, and maybe through that area, but maybe not everybody moved west. Maybe it was my family who came further south into um, Cleveland and Lincoln and Rutherford County in North Carolina, in western North Carolina. There were, there were quite a few Collins there I can never connect or haven't so far. I may someday. <laughs> I think you will. 
You have been involved with the MHA since the very beginning, as well as served as its board president for five years. Would you share a bit about when and how the MHA was started? You know, it started in, in Wise, Virginia with Dr. Brent Kennedy and, and others there. Um, and uh, the first union was 1997. And I went to it and quite a few afterwards. I missed a few somewhere along the way. But I, I certainly remember a lot of them. We we met. Uh, there were there's quite a large crowd the first year and second year and uh, a lot of people coming more than Brent Kennedy thought. And uh, they had a tent outside one or two years I know. And then we met at Kingsport and we met outside there. So that we just happened to not have rain I suppose and that worked well. But you can never tell of course. I've enjoyed going to these meetings. I always learn something. Some of the very first, uh, Don Marler spoke. He was from Louisiana and Texas and was connected to Redbone history and uh, learned a lot from uh, Don also about uh, the Redbones in Louisiana and Texas and South Carolina, too. And it's been going 27 years now. Yes, it's hard to believe, but uh, <laughs> yes. And I think I was president for um, for about five, I think, four or five. <laughs> right before me. Well, I was going to be president for two years, and I decided, <laughs> well, I'll stay on if they'll have me. So I remained. <laughs> I remained for those years. It grew on me. With all the years you've spent with the MHA, what significant changes have you observed over the years? One of the changes is that we met we met in different uh, places over time. We always have done that some, but we spread out more and more. I think uh, in North Carolina, uh, places like that. Older people in the group um, are now past, like uh, Johnny Gibson Ray was one. Um, and Claude Collins and others. I've seen that change over the years, too. Uh, there are others, too, but uh, those two I, I can think of right off. So those those are the biggest changes I've seen. The, some of the passing of some of the older Melungeon family members and uh, also the change more to technology and the use of the Internet and Facebook, too. And Scott, how about all of the advances we have made in genetics with DNA? Certainly, that's that's a big part. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm still learning, um, and I think other people are too. There's so much out there, and uh, but I think that it, it's important that we've, uh, we've done that with DNA and uh, quite a few advances and uh, you know, I'm I'm still learning a lot myself day to day. I don't. I'm tra a traditional researcher in lots of ways, and but sometimes you can't find the documentation. So I think the genetic research, DNA research, would be uh, is is ideal now. It's a perfect match with science and research and further study of the Melungeon people. It is, and it's exciting, too. Uh, new books coming out and uh, 
all along. And so uh, it's, it's a journey of discovery. And speaking of books, you're an editor and have both edited and written an essay in the book Carolina Genesis. I have it right here. What, what inspired you to get involved in the editing and contribute your writing to this book? Well, Brent Kennedy did first. He he always encouraged me to write, but um, I couldn't always travel to certain places as, as easily. So I wrote some about someone in the book, um, Joseph Willis, who lived in South Carolina, who was born a a um, slave in North Carolina, in eastern North Carolina, and um, his father was the um, plantation owner, and uh, there may have been a, a, a Native American ancestry also, but he, uh, while he was still a slave, he fought for Francis Marion, the swamp fox of the American Revolution, uh, with permission of his father, I'm sure, and, and mother. He he was emancipated in, uh, I, I've forgotten the date right now, but uh, his, his first cousin, uh, John Willis, founded the uh, city of uh, Lumberton, North Carolina. It's near the, uh, where the Lumbee Indians are. So he migrated west at some point to... Um, Greenville, South Carolina, and lived across the Reedy River here, there, and I got somebody to draw up a plat uh, of his uh, property there, I think 600 acres, as I remember. Um, it's, it's part of West Greenville now, and uh, he was here a while and then moved on to uh, Louisiana, and so when they had the Redbone uh, Conference in Alexandria, Louisiana, I went out and uh, Brent Kent, Dr. Brent Kennedy was there then and uh, spoke about um, Joseph Willis. But uh, he became known as the father of the Redbones there in, uh, in western Louisiana. So um, that, that all interested me, that travel, the migration. Uh, why did he migrate? Better economic uh, opportunity was it for race, racial reasons? Um, you know, all, all of that enters in together when people migrate. I think so. That was part of that. They definitely were just like the Melungeon people migrating from the East Coast into Appalachia. Being able to go out there was was great, and uh, uh, I remember Don uh, Marler and his wife uh, Sybil took us to. Um, uh, an early um, folk cemetery out there that had grave shelters or grave houses, very similar to the ones in Appalachia. I'm, I'm not sure that everybody who had a grave shelter uh, was Melungeon or Redbone, but a lot of people who were did have grave shelters in these uh, areas. Uh, uh, of Appalachia, West Virginia, and uh, Louisiana also. So I got interested in that, too, the, the gray shelters and burial practices. That's very interesting. And, of course, some of, the, uh, some, some of them went on to uh, the Redbones, went on to Texas, uh, Ashworth, and uh, 
I got interested in those families who went there. Yes, and you had written about the Lungeons of Arkansas. We have your article in the MHA newsletter. Uh, yes, there there were a number of families who went out there. There was what we think a Gibbs was a Gibson family. They go back to Stony Creek Church in Virginia and known for um, uh, its Melungeon members, especially in the church minutes, mentions Melungeons. And uh, there was also a Hall family, and uh, they settled in the um, eastern part of the uh, Ozarks along the White River. Uh, I've, I've got to go out there now, too, and uh, do more research. But uh, I've met some wonderful people along the way who helped her with research out there, made a lot of calls and, and emails to Arkansas. And so um, there were Melungeons in Arkansas. Scott, in your opinion, how do mixed heritage groups like the Melungeon people blur the lines of racial identity? I think it has to do with often the community they lived in, uh, how they were accepted as white or, or black or, or whoever, uh, Native American. I think it had to do with who was taking the census and uh, who they knew in the community. And sometimes I've always thought it was uh, personality too, that some people had a personality that made themselves um, um, available. Uh, it's been said too that people who uh, fought in battles in war, like the American Revolution, made themselves more acceptable among white culture that way. So, so the line is often blurred because of census, who the, who the poll taker, the census taker saw in the family, how they were perceived in the community. Uh, like one of the Hall men was, has been written up about being a real person of the frontier, you know, in Arkansas. So all of that, plays in. Of course, there was discrimination, certainly, um, not getting getting the best land always, uh, voting, other things. I know I've researched people in um, in Virginia along uh, Peddler's Creek uh, who, who have some Monacan ancestry. And as long as they were up in the uh, mountains near where the Blue Ridge Parkway is today, they were considered Native Americans. But when they moved down to work in Buchanan or some of the other towns in the Valley of Virginia, they were known as, as African then or black. So it's how people want to perceive them and in the blurring of identity. You know, here, here you have that opposite of uh, Native and uh, African, not, not particularly opposite, but you you have that change of perception. Of course, they might have been competing for jobs with other people. So that may have been where that came from. And that goes right into my next question. The Melungeon people have been described as, quote, too white to be black and too black to be white, end quote. How much do you agree with this description? Um, I think they were caught in the middle, really. They wanted to be... Uh, sometimes perceived as white there became a um 
a denial sometimes for people in the family that want to be part of the uh, white community sometimes. And uh, not everybody lived in a large Melungeon community like uh, Vardy area. And uh, some people migrated to live in cities, too. I'm thinking of Detroit, Michigan, you know, during the uh, auto industry boom there. So people are moving and they wanted to forget about their past, uh, move on and, and be part of the mainstream, I think, of American life. But it's wonderful that many uh, people of Melungeon descent have discovered that that ancestry that now that they left behind sometimes and it's understandable that someone would want to do that it's not uh, denying uh, was denying in a way but it's it's uh, learning to to accept also so I, I think that um, they're coming back to looking at their ancestry and uh, many people are and uh, and that's all good Yes, I agree with you on that, Scott. I think it's wonderful that we have so many more people reaching out to our organization, the MHA, to learn more about their Melungeon ancestry. Uh, we get all kinds of inquiries every day, and it's, I think it's just fabulous. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that that's, that, that, that happens. Scott, is there anything else you wish to share with our listeners? I, I think I've mentioned, I've just met a lot of wonderful people along the way. I, you know, I like to think of all the positive things that have happened, and I like to think of the uh, positive things that are happening now and, and will happen in the future. I think uh, MHA has a good future. It's in good hands. I, I hope I can, can uh, attend many more uh, unions. And uh, I'm glad you're meeting sometime in North Carolina, too. That's, that's good. Especially, uh, I think, in the Hillsborough area. <laughs> Scott, shh. We don't know that for sure, but we'll be announcing that later in the season. Sounds good to me. <laughs> How can our listeners get in contact with you? Um, Heather, you can contact me by um, Facebook, where I have an account. And you can also contact MHA and they'll pass the message along. Scott, thank you so much for being on our podcast and for your ongoing contributions to the MHA. It was an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Heather. And I enjoyed it all and uh, look forward to the next unions. We'll see you there, Scott. Okay, great. I plan to be there. You've been listening to the Melungeon Voices Podcast. On behalf of myself, Heather Andalina, and the entire MHA Executive Committee, we'd like to thank all of those who participated in making this episode possible. For more information, you can visit them on the web at melungeon.org. That's M-E-L-U-N-G-E-O-N dot O-R-G. The information, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode do not necessarily represent those of the MHA. Melungeon Voices is presented by the Melungeon Heritage Association. All rights are reserved.